anyone would like to get closer where the, the vibes are much more intense, <laughs> feel free. See a lot of takers. Right, tonight I just I want to speak a little bit about one of the very central teachings. I think there's just one teaching that the Buddha offered, and it was essentially that we have stress and suffering in our lives, and um, and that the the way that we that's just an, that's a given. But our, our mental suffering has much of our distress, especially our mental suffering, has everything to do with how it is that we relate to the inevitable aches and pains of our life. So it's, it's, uh, it can be reduced to a simple expression, which you've probably heard before, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. The Buddha put it very simply, I teach one thing and one thing only, dukkha and the end of dukkha, suffering and the end of suffering. And he was, wasn't so much referring to the, the inevitable pain that comes with birth and sickness and aging and loss and getting rejected and blamed. Those are all... Those are all just givens. Everyone who is born experiences them. But the end of suffering has to do with the, the way that our mind tends to compound the pain of the inevitable pains with very strong mental reactions. I want to read a particular sutra tonight, a teaching that is also many of you have read, but it's always good to bring it into the remind everyone, bring it back to the group. And this is entitled, if I can get to it, it's called the uh, Salata Sutta. S-A-L-A-T-H-A. When touched with a feeling of pain, the uninstructed ordinary person experiences sorrow, grief, and laments, beats his, his breast, becomes distraught. So he feels two pains, physical and mental, just as if they were to shoot a man with an arrow and right afterward were to shoot him with another one so that he would feel the pains of two arrows. In the same way, when touched with a feeling of pain, the uninstructed ordinary person sorrows, grieves, and laments, beats his breast, becomes distraught. So he feels two pains, physical and mental. Now the well-instructed disciple, that's you, of the noble ones, when touched with a feeling of pain, does not sorrow, grieve, or lament, does not beat his breast or become distraught. So he feels one pain, physical but not mental just as if they were to shoot a man with an arrow and right afterward did not shoot him with another one, so that he would feel the pain of only one arrow 
In the same way, when touched with a feeling of pain, the well-instructed disciple of the noble ones does not sorrow, grieve, or lament, does not beat his breast or become distraught. He feels one pain, physical but not mental. So this this beating of the breast, this lamenting, this this reactive mind is called, sometimes described as the second arrow. And I think that the, that, that is what we often conflate with, or what often gets conflated with pain or gets, gets merged with pain. We associate pain with suffering, but pain is pain and suffering is often that, that second arrow. So we do, when, when each of us experiences illness, I know I've, I've just met with several people who've just been through rounds of, of a lot of intestinal, there's an intestinal flu going around. That's, it's really uncomfortable. And many people have been having, there's a, an early, a fall respiratory infection. And, you know, there's a lot going around. And this is the time of year where the temperature drops, the, the little viruses tend to to proliferate a little bit more. So that's what comes with with being a human being in this climate and this time of year. That's how it is. It's not comfortable. It's very unpleasant. And we experience dis- we experience uh, dis-ease. There's, it's stressful. And how do you deal with that? Do we complain? Do we, um, do we, do you relax into it? Do you surrender? I mean, there's many, there's many different options. The last time you, something didn't go well in your life. Any of you have anything that didn't go well lately? (laughs) Did any of you, did any of you say, this is really hard to bear and really feel it? Feel the impact, the hollowness in your chest or the tightness in your belly or the sense of energetic collapse or any number of things that come with, with loss or, or desire that may have been unfulfilled. This, is, this comes, comes with the territory. There's often a shock or dismay at something not working out. But then there's the tendency to say, it's not fair. Why is it happening to me? And the, the universal experience of loss or rejection or pain or stress or, or illness becomes personalized. The personalizing of it, the making it all about me is the second arrow. And it is not, um, our practice isn't, it's not so easy to stop the second arrow. But it is, it can be interrupted. It can be even accepted. The fact that our mind is conditioned to come up with lots of complaints. The judging mind, the comparing mind, the, the self-condemning, castigating mind. These things arise according to conditions. This is our second choice in the matter. We, the first choice is that everything would go well. The second 
is that things don't always go well. And, and the first choice would be to be able to respond to what doesn't go well in a, in a very open-hearted and equanimous way. But we don't. And so our second choice is to, is to become reactive. So we na- we, each of us needs to, somewhere in the span of our life, we need to, to uh, how can I say it, make peace with the, with the way it is. Make peace with the second choice. Make peace with the, our first choice is that we would always be healthy, that we would live forever. Not everybody wants that. But there is a very strong tendency to not want to die. Does that seem... But just think about it. If you had to live forever, that would really be hard. It's something that what makes life beautiful is its, is its impermanence. What makes it poignant. If it just went on and on and on. Ugh. Anyway, we would all like it to go on longer, perhaps, than, than it does. And not just for us, but for those that we hold near and dear. That's our first choice. But the way it is, is it lasts as long as it lasts. The time, it's, it's certain to anybody who's born, and the time is uncertain when it will end. That's just how it is. So we need to make peace with the second, with, with that. It's not our first choice, but we have to make peace with the second one. And by making peace with the second, how it is, we, we cut through or interrupt the, the reactivity in our mind. And it's actually um, an antidote. It's a kind of antidote to, it's a way of dealing with the first, with the, with the fact that with the universal truths that present themselves. Making peace with the way it is. We'd all, we'd all love to, to, as I said, have no reaction to the fact that, um, that we're ill, that not to add any kind of extra to it, but we do. So we have to make peace with the fact that we have reactions. So our equanimity, even though every one of us might have the ideal of being able to maintain perfect poise and balance in the face of everything that comes in life, our equanimity, we can move in that direction of being able to accommodate the losses, the praise, the blame, when we gain, when we lose, all of that. We can move in that direction but because we are also conditioned to react. We're conditioned to, uh, to compound. We also have to make peace with our reactions. So equanimity doesn't mean that you stop having any reactions. It means, okay, I surrender. I surrender to the fact that I'm an uncooked human. I'm not completely 100% developed. I may be 80% as, uh, what's, I forgot his name, Roach, um, the guy who started the church of 80%, the church of 80% sincerity, 80% enlightened, 80% the, the, the demand that, we're, that we be 100% perfect, that's a second arrow. That torments us. So 50% or 80%, just moving in the direction of making peace with just the way I am. 
I, I was interested when I was thinking about this tonight to take a survey, just so this would come alive, to make a survey of if you know in your own life what your second arrow is, where it is that you tend to compound your, your pain with extra suffering. If anybody's willing to say, what is your second arrow? I, mean, I figured I'd get everyone to participate in this. No one here has second arrows? Please. Self-doubt. Beautiful, self-doubt. Now, can you make peace with self-doubt? So that's, our practice is to make the shift from, from acting out of self-doubt. We may not stop self-doubt. It may appear it's got a certain amount of habit strength, but we can, we can make peace with the fact that that's what's showing up in my mind. So that's, that's a beautiful example. Anyone else have a second arrow that tends to torment your, your life? Add insult to injury, please. Envy. 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 Exactly. Envy, jealousy, comparing. Beautiful. And when you can see envy as envy, it make peace with the fact that you have envy. Surrender to the fact that envy arises in your mind. And be able to know, oh, envy is like this, and feel it. Then you're actually interrupting, and, and you're very making peace as an antidote to the very reactivity that you norm Linda. Locating the source of your suffering outside of yourself. Yes. Why are they doing that to me? Yes. That's a lovely one. And when you, uh, when you notice that you're locating the suffering outside of yourself, what happens? When, you're, when you notice that you're projecting it externally. When you, when you can see that, it evaporates. Exactly. So we want to, we want to bring that reaction, that reaction, that projection into the light of awareness and acknowledge, oh, this is projection. This is attributing my pain to some other person or some other situation. Please. Perfectionism. What was it? The church of 100%. Perfectionism. Exactly. And we can all notice our perfectionistic tendencies. We can see the way that we can compound a situation with that kind of demand that, and that, me- that measuring mind that's, that's always, always um, putting the tight squeeze and turning a situation just as it is into something unacceptable. Please. Despair. This will always be the, a despair, the sense that things will always be this way. Yes, that's a kind of doubt too. It's a, it, the tendency of the mind to make conclusions about things. To project, that's another form of projection, projecting into the imagined future of how things will be and then become con- becoming convinced in that. The beauty of our practice is that we can wake up to the fact that, we're, that our mind is doing that. We can even use despair as, a, as, the, um, as the cause of our awakening. 
That's the unique thing about being human. All these torments, especially the mental torments, when they are brought under the light of attention, when, when we're able to make peace with the fact that that has arisen, they become, that becomes the cause of our opening and our awakening. It becomes the cause of compassion. It becomes the, the, um, it becomes the cause of our freedom. So our difficulties are, are not ultimately the obstacle that they're usually associated with. Please, Tanya. Guilt, I've, I've done something. Right. Guilt, I've done something wrong. I know I've done something wrong. The story of guilt, the, the creating of the identity view of somebody who's done something wrong. And, but you know better, right? Fabricating that someone's upset with you, so that's the that's. They might be busy. Yes, so ruminating about what I did wrong and what I and why they're mad at me. Yes, so have have you in the course of your practice become aware of that in real time and interrupted it at all with your with your. People, your board of directors can help you with that yes. and show, show you that. <laughs> so can you imagine making peace on the spot with the, with the fact that guilt is arising? Yeah. Great. That, that, story being that story being fabricated. Please, speak very loudly. Aha. Uh-huh. So that's so self-blame and that's my karma making all kinds of conclusions about ourselves telling ourselves stories and yes that's that's a very chronic habit and so that it seems like there is a common theme of of self-talk that is uh, castigating condemning uh, unworthy negative and this is what what's called uh, self-view, and it is a second arrow because then, the, as I was, as I say, almost every week in any experience, there's only six things happening ever. There's seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, sensing something in our body, and then there's there's thinking. There's basically these six sense experiences. So our experience of of mental suffering is an elaboration on one of those six experiences. So that's what we want to look at. How are we turning... Those six experiences can be difficult to bear, very difficult sensations, but the mental suffering is all about the elaboration. So it's wonderful to include that. And it doesn't mean... Our practice doesn't mean that you stop doing that. It may get interrupted... But it is—it's some—it's necessary in the span of our practice to make peace with the fact that our conditioning is such that our mind elaborates, it fabricates, it creates guilt, it creates self-judgment. But we can make a shift from acting and experiencing out of that view to noticing that view, to to being able to make peace with it. Please. 
What about anger and fear that are real? The, I, I would suggest that the anger and fear are most often, I would say, 100% of the time, uh, the second arrow. They are reactions to some sense experience. So they... Even anger. Well, it's an ancient second arrow. <laughs> it's a conditioned. It's a conditioned reaction to, as the Buddha spoke about it. It's it's a reaction to some kind of desire that is unfulfilled, or some kind of of wounding of our of our pride or our self-view, some way that we've become deflated or hurt or harmed or some, some way, and that anger is the, is the reaction, is the defense from, uh, from feeling our, our human universal condition of vulnerability, that we don't always get what we want and we don't always want what we get. Please. Her daughter is three, and she was playing dress-up with another child? Another little girl, yeah. She's not three yet. Oh, she's not three I'm yet. I'm just not that exact. And um, I just want to keep her young. And um, she came to me, and she said that the other girl had shouted, had, had gotten upset with her. She said that the other little girl had shouted and, and gotten yeah, upset with her. She's mad. She's mad, glad, sad. sad. Just, like, we used to go. Sounds great. No, little kids have all kinds of experiences, and 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 they get they get frustrated, and and that's a reaction to to something that may happen. And you may say that it's that it's ancient, but it's a it's a habit of mind, and it it's something that that changes with understanding. The more understanding you have of a situation, usually the the more clear you see a situation, the less angry we get become. Yeah, fear is you know, fear is 
is a is another second arrow. It's a, our life has within it all these things that are that all the demands that are universal, and depending on how you uh, how your how you approach those situations, it either becomes paralyzing or become or it's free, and fear turns what may be a challenging situation into a paralyzing one because it projects. It project, it's never about what's actually happening. It's always a projection about what's next. And it's one that, is, that produces a kind of constriction and a, or a kind of avoidance or some, some flavor. And it is, it, it, it's a form of mental suffering. And it is something that arises in every species, but it is a second arrow. And it is possible with with understanding to make peace with fear and also to reduce one's experience of fear. And the, a simple way of reducing our fear is to find our relief, to orient our search for relief in the, to the present moment as opposed to what's next. Part of our fear is associated with the tendency of our mind to try to guarantee well-being for the future. Right, because I get really obsessed with like, getting my calendar straight. Yeah, you, she, she says she gets obsessed trying to get her calendar when straight. When really bad, I'm like, you know what? You're just in fear. But then I stop there. It's like you're saying, like, back it up another step. And I... Well, you don't even have to back it up another step. You need, need to simply notice, use fear... As a, as a guide back to the immediate present. So I don't mean the story of fear. I mean the felt experience of fear. It's right, the fear is right here. The, what generates fear is a, is a reaction in our mind, a projection in our mind into something, un, uh, something that's dangerous about something that could happen. Maybe based on something that happened before. But the fear itself is a feeling that can guide you into a uh, sense of being present. And the more you orient yourself, get used to, become more stabilized in being present, and that's what mindful attention does, the, the re- there is an inevitable reduction of fear because your life will be just l- a lot less oriented toward uh, or less dependent on how things turn out. You feel paralysis. Even paralysis becomes the cause of being here. So what's paralysis feel like in real time? Yeah, so you would want to feel that. You want to feel it. Not just the tendency is to get lost in the story. The feeling of it's very, very um, alive. Anyway, this is, we'll move on to another. Please. Well, the.
It's, yes, uh, even the positive emotions are often a reaction, uh, a favorable reaction to something. Uh, and, that, and even positive feelings are, are, can be a slippery slope we can, if we become dependent on, on uh, certain experiences, then then uh, that's, that's not so reliable either. But to, at the same time, it's much, it, there's less suffering involved in, there's less paralysis, there's less um, torment involved in positive emotions. Gladness, gratitude, generosity, um, kind, you know, just there's so many positive emotions that are just onward leading that that help us actually meet our life in a more in a less reactive way. So we're talking about the the arrows that cause that cause that turn pain into suffering. And of course if you're dependent on pleasure and dependent on positive feelings, that's not ultimately liberating either. But they help. They help a lot. Any other comments about your second arrow? Anybody want to confess their delusions? I love this uh, poem that Albert gave me. I'll share it with you. It's from Tony Hoagland, and it's entitled Upward. With the help of Zen, and you can... You can interchange Zen or meditation, essentially what that means. With the help of Zen, my old friend Jack dissolved his disagreements with the world, purified his quarrels, shushed his ego, stopped biting back when bitten, and gradually had no opinions other than wise ones. And so our friendship lost its bones and meatiness because it is clear to me that I am not going to humanly improve but will be forever benighted by shadow and abrasion. I will keep eating my experience with a certain indigestion and shitting out opinions to the end. (laughs) Goodbye, my friend, goodbye. I say quietly to myself like a character in some science fiction novel as I watch the smooth spaceships of Zen slip the heavy harness of the earth and rise into the weightlessness of space, leaving a few hundred million of us behind, weeping and holding onto our stormy weather and our extended allegiance to stones. It's beautiful because it's... it's uh, it's tongue in cheek, you know. It talks about the 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 tendency to excessively idealize weightlessness, the freedom. Not that that it's not possible to become increasingly weightless, free, but it also highlights the tendency to cling so desperately to our uh, kind of a morbid clinging to our suffering. And I think our practice helps us to sit somewhere in the middle, making peace with, with our disagreements as well as lightening them. 
lightening our disagreements, but also making peace with our humanness that's very conditioned. But the teachings also ask us to clarify our perception of reality. That is clear perception that brings the easing of the second arrows. That we, as Jennifer Wellwood says so beautifully in her poem that I read at least once every three weeks. <laughs> but she says, my friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully, like ripe human beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child, she seems cruel, but she is only wild, and her compassion exquisitely precise. Brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth, she strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We are not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. So even hope in the way of clinging becomes a second arrow. So... I, for some reason, as I'm saying this, I always uh, think of a, a club that I joined about 35 years ago, along with some of my colleagues, and it's called the Duca Club. The Duca Club is, of course, Duca is the word for unsatisfactoriness, that which is difficult to bear, suffering, etc., and the second era, all the, all the kinds of reactions. But the Duca Club, in order to gain membership to the Duca Club, you, the, only required, um, the only requirement is that you, uh, that you give up hope. I don't mean optimism, idealism, uh, vision, but hope of of just that hope that leaves you in a, in a state of suspended happiness, that, that's associating your well-being with, with, uh, with something that may never arrive. That you, that you see things, you see life as it is. You give up hope for permanence, hope for a life where there isn't bad news, where your candidate always wins. Give up hope and keep working for the candidate that you like. 
but see things as they are. That's the, that's the name of the game. And in general, just let go. Let go. Let be. Let life be as it is. And I'll leave you with the words of Ajahn Sumedho. says, the practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking and reaction. You simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, letting go. Rather than trying to develop this practice and develop that and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the sutras, study the Abhidharma, learn Pali and Sanskrit, the Majamaka and the Prajnaparamita, get ordinations in the Hinayana, the Mahayana, the Vajrayana, write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism, Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go, let go, let go. I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There is nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. Some of you might have the desire to become the Buddha of the age, Maitreya radiating love throughout the world, but instead I suggest being an earthworm, letting go of the desire to radiate love throughout the world, be an earthworm who knows only two words, let go, let go, let go. You see, ours is the lesser vehicle, the Hinayana, so we have only these simple poverty-stricken practices. But the important thing in practice is to be constant and resolute, determined to be awake and awaken. This is not to be conceited or foolish, but resolute, even when the going is rough. Remind yourself of your Buddha nature, the Buddha, the Dharma, the truth, the way things are, the Sangha, and stay with it. Stay with your practice. Letting go of despair, of anguish, of pain, of doubt, of everything that arises and passes that we habitually cling to and identify with. Keep this letting go like a constant refrain in your mind so it just pops up on its own no matter where you are. So let's let go of everything that's been said right now and let go of the future which is unborn and just rest here for a moment. There may be discomfort right now. There may be tiredness, whatever it is that you're feeling. See if you can just experience that without the extra arrow of aversion. Or demand that it be different. And even if you do feel some aversion or resistance, let that be. Let that go. And bringing this aware presence to your human condition is an act of loving kindness. And you might as well add to that loving kindness of just enveloping your 
mind and body with attention. Add to it words that express the deepest wish that you have for yourself. May I be happy and peaceful and safe, healthy, strong. May my heart be at ease. And may my life be filled with loving kindness. And may my practice tonight and every day and every night be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all beings. And may any of the benefits of sitting tonight be shared with all beings. May all beings live with ease and know happiness and peace. Okay, homework, notice the second arrows. And try to make peace with the second arrows. Make peace with life as it is. Thank you. Thanks for your generosity, too.